Welcome to this episode of De-Escalating Disability. I'm Gavin Jackson, and this podcast is about the intersectionality of autism spectrum disorder, race, and policing. This episode contains audio that some listeners may find upsetting. In this series, we've discussed the intricacies of autism spectrum disorder. Listen to how one mother is handling her son's diagnosis and fears. We've heard of incidents involving the police and those with ASD, and what preliminary research is showing. Now, in our last episode, we want to understand policing in South Carolina. We speak with the head of the state's Criminal Justice Academy, a former police officer turned law professor, and hear what others on the front lines of the law are doing to improve relations with the communities they serve. What does it take to become a police officer in South Carolina? Willing to serve in such a capacity takes a lot, but the basic qualifications are they must be employed with a law enforcement agency or detention facility, pass a satisfactory background check, be at least 21 years of age, have a high school diploma or GED, a valid South Carolina driver's license, and be a U.S. citizen. Recruits must finish 12 weeks at the State Criminal Justice Academy. Being a police officer in 2020 is not an easy task. Every day, their life is on the line and are scrutinized more than nearly any other public servant. They can become the targets of outrage for incidents they were never involved with, tragic incidents that also yield difficult conversations about race, tactics, and reforms. Ted Richardson is a 23-year veteran of the Lawrence County Sheriff's Department and currently a school resource officer at an elementary school in the county's namesake town, which is 35 miles southeast of Greenville. Ted spoke with me at a Fraternal Order of Police event in Myrtle Beach recently about what it's like to be an officer in 2020. Well, it's changed. It's changed a lot. And, um, you know, I mean, we've had this discussion with our fellow officers and other, you know, citizens and whatnot. When I started, there was a little bit, of course, you know, police officers historically have always been underpaid. But back in, you know, when I started, there was a little prestige and a little, you know, you know, proudness about it. But now all that's gone. And so, you know, early on, police officers were looked up to. Now they're looked down on. And, and really, I think that's the major change in, in policing today. When I asked him about high-profile incidents with police, he says while they are disturbing, they are not the norm. The media and people in politics, they take isolated incidents and they make it and they publicize it and continuously talk about it like it's the norm. But an in, in actual person doesn't actually take the time to look at that and say that is a very, 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 very isolated incident. And, and if they were actually informed of what went on, they would be surprised at the real facts and statistics in these type of incidents. Like we previously heard, on average, a thousand people are killed every year by police. Some of them have mental health issues which officers receive limited amounts of training to handle. But how did officers become frontline responders to the mental health crisis? Since the 1950s, America has engaged in the policy of deinstitutionalization, which moves those with the most pronounced intellectual disabilities in differing mental capabilities out of public psychiatric hospitals and reintegrates them into society. While deinstitutionalization has given wrongfully committed people greater freedom and personal autonomy, and kept many people of differing mental capacities out of state-run institutions, it has also introduced people into a society that was not adequately equipped to address their needs. By discharging people into the public without ensuring that they would receive proper medication or the necessary services to function, 
deinstitutionalization has actually contributed to the mental health crisis and the increase in police involvement in the lives of the mentally differently abled. While the practice is rooted in the philosophy of giving those with differing mental capabilities the greatest amount of freedom and autonomy, the policy has contributed to the sharp rise in police use of force and incarceration rates for those with diminished mental capabilities or those experiencing mental health crisis. The multiple roles that officers handle is something Jackie Swindler, the head of South Carolina's Criminal Justice Academy, mentions when I asked him what specific training out of the 480 hours recruits undergo focuses on people with disabilities and mental illness. Duties are to teach and instruct basic recruits. Although we do a lot of advanced training, our primary mission is basic recruits. We offer a, a, a host of all types of different trainings, but uh, um, regarding autism, we do a four and a half hour block on dealing with individuals who are in different types of, of episodes or incidents that deal with mental illness or uh, intellectual disabilities and certainly also uh, people on the autism spectrum. During that uh, four and a half hour block, we spend some time on the autism spectrum to instruct the officers on things to look for, uh, how to act, how to talk, how to treat, how to respond. We recently had individuals from the uh, South Carolina Department of Mental Health look at what we are currently teaching, and, and they were very complimentary that, that we are teaching very adequately uh, about dealing with uh, particularly incidents involving individuals uh, who have autism. So we were pleased to hear that. They're also going to give a couple of suggestions, and we'll be making those uh, changes here shortly. Uh, but we do that for all basic recruits. We also do a, a program that we send out uh, dealing uh, with people in these instances of mental illness or other you know, episodes. And we push that out via CADIS, which is our internet web based, to all students who are already uh, have graduated the academy, who are already class one officers. Swiller says that as a result of this training, officers should be able to recognize the behaviors of those with autism spectrum disorder. Uh, anyone who's a new officer who has been through the academy recently uh, since we've been doing this, and then certainly uh, veteran officers who have uh, been through advanced training to deal with these things, they certainly would know what to look for, uh, then how to respond, how to act. Uh, we teach them a, a myriad of things uh, of how to have communication skills, uh, how to look at body language, body movements, those types of things, how to calm people down through your talk and through your actions, how to be patient. Uh, but there are agencies now who are going further than even this, where they are having officers respond if they know ahead of time that the incident involves someone who's, uh, who may be on the autism spectrum or some other um, mental illness crisis type situation. They'll send officers who are even more trained, more versed in how to deal with these situations. They may even go not in a traditional police car or a police uniform so as to calm. But, but most times calls happen where police show up in uniform in their car, not exactly knowing what they have till they get there. And so then they need to be versed. And so they certainly uh, do not want to agitate uh, the situation because you don't want to get yourself harmed, the officer, or neither have to harm the individual. So the more you know how to calm the person, treat the person, talk to the person, then the more successful you'll be in those interactions. University of South Carolina law professor Seth Stoughton has heavily researched the current state of police training in the state and presented before the House Equitable Justice System and Law Enforcement Reform Committee this summer 
while the country and state experienced widespread, predominantly peaceful protests following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minnesota police officers. I mean, I, I can tell you, not just in South Carolina, I, I can certainly tell you on a national scale, there is somewhere between very little and no training provided to officers on autism spectrum disorder specifically. What training there is provided is often lumped into a, a, a much broader unit on um, medical issues or things to be aware of as you're interacting with individuals. And that's not inappropriate, but sometimes something like autism spectrum disorder, which many officers don't have any exposure to and can't really understand intuitively the way that they do, for example, someone being deaf, that topic may require a little more emphasis than it gets. Remember the behaviors Dr. Laura Carpenter outlined of those with autism, or the situation Tario Anderson faced in Greenville? Factor in implicit biases in the dynamic changes, whether officers realize it or not. Like a lot in policing, race is complicated and health factors are complicated. So we talked a little bit ago about how an officer might perceive certain behaviors as suspicious or non-compliant or even threatening. When you add race into that discussion, it can also change an officer's perceptions without them ever being aware of it. This is the idea of implicit associations or implicit biases. For example, not just in policing, but in society generally, one of the implicit associations that's fairly prevalent is an exaggeration of age or maturity when it comes to black youth. That is, I may see a black 10-year-old, and I may even know that they're 10, but for complicated reasons having to do with cognitive bias and social background, I'm not expecting that black 10-year-old to act like a 10-year-old. I may be expecting them to act like an older child. And when they don't, when they fail to meet my behavioral expectations, then I can get negative conclusions from that. They're acting irresponsibly or rashly or recklessly, even though they might actually be ask, acting like a perfectly normal 10-year-old. When you put together that particular implicit bias, for example, it means that when an officer is interacting with uh, an autistic black youth, not only do they have their uh, normal, if you will, behavioral expectations, but now those expectations are complicated by the racial implications of the officer's cognitive biases. This isn't just true of children. It's also true of adults. Uh, for example, we know that one of the prevalent cognitive biases in society is an association between black and crime or black and suspicion. Without ever being aware of it, an officer may view a black male as more suspicious than some other individual of a different demographic set uh, engaged in identical actions. So when you add in the potential for misinterpretation because of autism and the potential for misinterpretation based on race or even other factors like gender and age, we can see that there, there can be a real problem with an officer properly calibrating 
their expectations for the way that the person they're interacting with is going to behave. And that means the officer's responses to that person, their reactions, are going to be shaped by their expectations. Despite it all, there unfortunately will still be room for error going forward. But we also have to keep in mind that it's going to be complicated, that depending on the nature of the encounter and the context, officers may not be able to distinguish, particularly in a time-pressured situation, the difference between someone who's verbally non-responsive because they have a spectrum disorder and someone who's verbally non-responsive because they are actually non-compliant or resistant with what the officer is telling them to do. So there is going to be, unfortunately, I think, a, a room for error that, depending on the situation, may be very difficult to to, to address successfully. So what can be done? What is being done to ensure that tragic incidents between police and those with ASD are averted? USC law professor Seth Stoughton again gives us his input. So the, the short version of this is to address the problem of training. We need significantly more hours of training. We need experts in interactions with individuals with autism spectrum disorder to provide the knowledge aspect. And we need interactive dynamic role play scenarios, which are very time intensive, but are unparalleled in their effectiveness in terms of training skills and providing uh, situations that officers can then debrief and learn from. So we need we need resources, we need time, and unfortunately, that, like everything else, takes money. Swindler says if mental health calls become more prevalent, that he would reconsider increasing training hours. Well, I mean, the more that you know the frequency of an event, the more you would know that you would need to have training on that event. So that could be for anything. So certainly, if, if we knew that that was something that is more common now, or more uh, chance of that being a type of incident you respond to, then certainly you would uh, probably add more training. But again, we recently had our training reviewed and we're told that this was very, very adequate, that we have a good amount, uh, enough training right now for this topic for police to be more familiar. So but certainly if we see the need arises, then certainly there would be uh, that opportunity to add more training. Hanahan is a small town in Berkeley County. It sits on the banks of the Cooper River, that flows 60 miles southeast to meet the Ashley River at the Charleston Peninsula. Police Chief Dennis Turner says his department is working to become more inclusive and would incorporate more mental health professionals into response efforts if there was the money for it. There, I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening. A lot of the mental health departments are embedding um, clinicians into the police departments that opposed to arrest. Um, like we just had one recently until... Um, a grant, the grant wasn't renewed, which um, was very frustrating that we would get in situations where somebody is having a psychiatric episode. That's the best way to describe it. In years past, the solution was putting handcuffs on them and take them to jail. That's not doing anything. That's going to compound the problem. Well, 
we would call either where we are, Berkeley Mental Health or their clinician or mobile crisis, they would come out. There's a process they do where they essentially go ahead and sign probate papers right there, and we help get them to a facility to get an evaluation and get started on treatment. Turner's department has been involved in supporting the Special Olympics for years. Those fundraisers inspired a sergeant whose child is on the autism spectrum to create patches and awareness of autism. Turner said that awareness and taking steps to be involved in the community are just some ways his officers are trying to understand the needs of others. With this profession is you got to be willing to talk to people and have understanding for everybody. And we've gone a lot further. Um, we're um, working on sending officers through the, uh, the CIT training. And as a matter of fact, I just got an email right before I logged on to this um, about a whole list of trainings that are coming up involving that that I want to send my people to just so they get a better understanding. Um, just because that's what it's about. It's working together and and you need to include everybody in your in your community. And I'm really thankful for like the the children that are on the spectrum that, that we've interacted, that I've interacted with, I mean, it's had an impact on me um, that I can't, I can't really explain, but it has, it's really changed my, um, over the years, how my, my percept, how I perceive things and um, how I, how I approach and get other officers to approach different situations. Lawmakers are also looking into reforms they can implement. Following the death of George Floyd and the subsequent protests that riveted the nation and South Carolina, House Speaker Jay Lucas, a Republican from Darlington County, created the Equitable Justice System and Law Enforcement Reform Committee and put both the House Republican and Democratic Party leaders as chairman. Here's Republican Majority Leader Gary Simrell of York County describing the task of the committee at its first hearing in July. During these unprecedented times that we face, not only in this state, but all over this globe. The task we have before us today, uh, although many consider daunting, is extremely important. Uh, It's important for equality and justice for all South Carolinians. Uh, It's important for us to take the time to meet, to hear from experts, to make sure that in everything we stand for in South Carolina, that is it inclusive for the people uh, who call South Carolina home. I'm going to introduce uh, the panel, and you can see the panel is large, and that's on purpose. Uh, This panel that I'm going to introduce to you today comprises nearly 15% of the House of Representatives, and it is strictly bipartisan. While politics plays a part in our our world today and in what we do in our worldview, it certainly should not play a part in us moving forward and making sure uh, that in everything we do in South Carolina, is for all. The committee continues to meet regularly to hear from a variety of experts and members of the public on reforms from things such as civil asset forfeiture and drug courts to training and sentencing reform. Legislation from the committee is expected in early 2021 when lawmakers return to Columbia. The forthcoming bills are expected to be a top priority of the legislative session and could become laws that might very well reshape the criminal justice system for South Carolinians. This is Gavin Jackson, and in conjunction with the Diversity Leaders Initiative at Furman University, thank you for listening to this podcast on the intersectionality of autism, race, and policing. Those looking for resources should visit familyconnectionssc.org.
or call 1-800-578-8750. This podcast was produced with the help of Dr. John Belcher, Shannon Boberts, Cynthia Brown, Alan Coles, Casey Fields, Amy Holbert, and Jim Lehman, and in partnership with South Carolina Public Radio. 